Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creanitators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. For today's interview, I'm excited to be joined by artist and storyteller extraordinaire Gene Ha, artist behind Wonder Woman Historia Top 10 May your own work that came out from Oni Press slash Lion Forge somewhat recently and a whole host of others. We're going to talk to Gene today about the comics work, including the most recent uh, volume two of Wonder Woman Historia, which is a big DC Black Label book. So Gene, uh, first off, thanks so much for joining. How are you doing this morning? Uh, it's good to be here. Um, you know, as you know, as the old joke goes, uh, uh, comic book interviews give me a reason to wake up in the afternoon. So uh, it's <laughs> yeah. it's almost noon, but I have my coffee, so I'm ready for the interview. You're ready to go. Awesome. How are you? How yeah. are you recovering from slash feeling about uh, what's been a busy con season? I know I, I saw you recently at C2E2, a terrific con before that. How how's the con season going for you? Uh let me see. So um, I did. Uh, I haven't done anything for most of the summer. Uh, before then, it was Comic Con Revolution in California. Uh, then I did just, uh, the weekend before last weekend, I did Terrificon Connecticut for the first time, which was an amazing, uh, small, medium-sized comic book convention, but with amazing New York League talent showing up all the time, who I'd never seen at conventions before. Uh, hmm. let me see. And then uh, I got to do C2E2 the next weekend, which wasn't hard. The hard part was that I booked too many pre-show sketch commissions. So I was mm. working nonstop for two weeks, just trying to get all of these done and just barely squeaked them in, but got them all ready for pickup. Yeah, I, that's definitely one thing that stood out to me um, as I've talked to more creators is how busy uh, like con season is for artists a lot of times, especially on the commission front, right? And it's a good problem to have. You know, you have people who want your work, I imagine. But it's funny, like you, I, I talked to uh, Nick Chirgoda, amazing artist there as well, and just like head down gotta get these commissions done <laughs> during the con it's yeah. pretty crazy oh the thing for me is uh i hate doing the commissions during the convention because then i can't talk to anybody and yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're anyone who's yeah anyone who's a regular in artist alley has seen the famous artist who's just nose down uh facing their table just finishing up commissions the whole convention which is kind of yeah. like, you know, you might as well wait, mail them in. Why go to the convention to do that? Because you, you're not going to experience the convention. They're not going to experience you. Right, right. Except yeah, for no, watch it's tricky, tricky catch-22. Yeah, sure. Right, if you want to see the process in action. Um, well, good, good. I'm glad you're glad you're hanging in there with cons. Uh, it's been it's been good to get back out there and doing it, um, you know, uh, as, as they've been available. So let, let's talk first a little bit about Wonder Woman Historia. So volume two is out now. This is the the volume that you produced with Kelly Sue DeConnick. Uh, volume one was with artist Phil Jimenez, and volume three is going to be with Nicholas Scott. Um, how did this project come about for you, and how long has it been in the works? Um, it came about because uh, I was riding an airport shuttle from uh, the airport to Heroes Con, and the person, the other person on the shuttle, turned out to be uh, the husband of Kelly Sue DeConnick who happened to know mm. all the projects she was interested in. She wasn't at the convention. And he said, yeah. would you be interested in working with my wife? And I said, Kelly Sudeconic, hell yeah. So uh, that I jumped, other than just knowing she was on it, there was nothing else I knew. And I just knew I wanted to do the book. It turned out to be So this was this was project. Matt Fraction yeah. on a shuttle and you just got to talking and <laughs> there it is. Yeah, I was like, hi, do you happen to be in comics? Yeah, I happen to be in comics. Are you Gene Ha? Yeah. Who are you? Matt Fraction. Oh, we've never met before. Shake hands and like, you know, yeah, my yeah. wife is interested in working with you someday. 
So uh, yeah, it was one of those conversations. Just total coincidence, but a but a perfect match. Um, so so volume two is out now. Like I said, it's as volume one, people can check these out. Historia is, I think, very different from what um, fans of like a Wonder Woman graphic novel might typically expect. In that it is intensely lore based, right? It's about the history of the Amazons as a whole. You know, it's not like it's not a Diana story, at least not yet, right? It's it is, but it isn't. Um, what was the experience like for you? getting acquainted with the project and working with Kelly Sue in terms of like the mission of Historia, you know? Uh, my onboarding process uh, to real, when I really got going was getting to read uh, the first script um, that uh, Phil Jimenez had worked on. And then some of the art that Phil had been working on from those scripts. Um, I should mention the first thing is that if you imagine how you're going to retell the story of the Amazons, uh, my assumption is that you would tell it from from the ground, from the view of the women on Earth going through troubles, and then showing how this leads to, to their passion to want to be, you know to form the Amazons and why they need to. And she did something an amazing creative choice, which was she started from the god viewpoint, from the god female goddesses of the Greek pantheon, which I thought, how can this work? But you read the script, and you well. I read the script. You guys can read the darn comic. Uh, and you can see <laughs> it is amazing. It is really powerful. Uh, and you can really feel their anger and fury and need to do something about the world that humans live in. Um, and then at towards the end, then she moves to the human scale. And it's amazing how you just, it's kind of a shock going back to Earth again. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's the first thing I, uh, that was uh bit of my introduction to it, just seeing like, I can't believe she pulled off this story in the script. And then I got, you know, then peeking at Phil's designs and layouts and his, the pages he'd oftentimes had not finished. Um, I've described it as uh, Margaret Atwood writing a script for um, Stanley Kubrick and Alexander McQueen to film and design. And yeah. it was the most intimidating project I've ever jumped on board of. Really? I know how I would, yeah, I would, I know how I would have drawn the script Kelly Sue DeConnick uh, gave to Phil, but seeing mm. how he did, it was just like, this is insane. And honestly, he only got done with volume one a few months before I did. And he was starting way before I did. The, the amount of work he put into that book is insane. And I took forever to get mine done. You can see, you can, it's, it's in, I've had, uh, a really good, uh, well-known artist friend of mine said, essentially Phil has drawn beyond the level of human perception. You can't mm. actually, I'm a little, it's literally too. You can't actually register all the details he put into that book. Like there's a scene of like a thousand bosses floating through the air at dis different distances and they're Greek bosses. So they're all painted with figures and stories. And some of them are so tiny. You can't tell what the story is. But he drew them. They're there in detail. Yeah. You just can't see it with the human eyes. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And now an Eisner winning uh, piece of work, right? It's the, the one Roman yeah. story number one. Phil did win the Eisner for pencils. Um, that's interesting. So did, you got those images. You got those layouts. You got some of those designs as you're already working on volume two. It right. sounds like you had a sense of what you were looking at in terms of like, wow, this is I need to try to measure up to this. Did you feel like, I don't know, like how uh, did that competition did, reflect itself not think in that. your work? I, I oh, okay. did not think okay. I need to measure up to this. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to be able to do what Phil's doing. There's no way I'm going to yeah. uh, be able to outfill Phil. 
so I had to figure out ways to simplify the story, to simplify the dra the drawings and the costumes a little bit, or at least how I drew them, compared to how Phil did them, um, while also putting in things that are very Gene Ha uh, to make up for me not being Phil Hemanis. But there's no way I could outdo what he did. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, so even that's interesting though that even at this, you know, at this stage in your career, like you're you're accomplished. You've won Eisner's. You've done a lot of good work. Um, I would have thought that something like uh, some of your earliest works or a top 10 where you're working with Alan Moore and that has that level of profile would have felt like a bigger challenge. But actually this you say is like the, the biggest challenge you felt because of, because of that like incredible kickoff essentially. Yeah. If the modern, now if the Phil Heman of 1998 had done the first issue of top 10, I feel comfortable. I could have done something kind of keeping, you know, keeping face with what he did back then. I mean, I'm perfectly comfortable with saying that. If the Gene Ha of today or of 1998 uh, had to draw the second issue of Top 10 after Phil Jimenez had put this level of work into Top 10 number one, there's no way. There's mm. no way either of us could have kept up when I was younger or I, me now. There's just, it's, and yeah. Top 10 is famous as a, as a detailed book, but Phil Jimenez went beyond right. the Top 10 level by far. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really something. Okay, so a ton of respect there. That's awesome. Uh, oh, yeah. So in terms of your volume and in terms of what you wanted to do, given that, you know, you talk in the issues notes about your goals of putting the divine on the page, right? And you talked about how this is a, the perspective is, it starts with the gods, actually. It doesn't start with humanity. Um, how did you approach this artistically? And what are some of the, like, the details you're proudest of in terms of how you represented what is a hard thing to represent because it the divine is inherently unknowable in a lot of ways, right? So there's a scene, uh, I think it's about page 10, uh, where it's um, Hippolyta on a horse riding through forest. And the script asked me to show that Artemis is watching and following uh, Hippolyta. And she can actually feel over her shoulder that someone is following her and watching her, but that Artemis is literally not there bodily following her. And I had to figure out how to do that in storytelling, which created uh, this first section of script I got. And this created the theme, one of the big themes of, or the tropes I used for how I was going to handle uh, the divine in the earthly world uh, in the book. I stole a trick from the movie uh, Midsommar, um, mm. where they put faces uh, in the trees and inside of masses of trees and things like that and other elements in the background. But it doesn't work very well in movies because movies have... Modern movies have moving cameras that slide left and right and, you know, go forward on rails and such like that. Um, but in comic books, because we're all still images, this can work really, really well. So um, I was able to put faces into the trees following uh, Hippolyta and then looking over the, over the Amazons, even when they don't realize that someone's watching them. Uh, and there are various uh, complex ways this happens. And sometimes they'll even put and the same goddess multiple times. Oh, yeah. There's a scene where um, uh, later in the book where a, a group of Amazons of the Seventh Tribe are leaving uh, the ruined building where they're living right now. And as uh, sunset falls and you'll see that um, this there's no goddess in the first two panels. They're all like, almost identical. But in the third panel, the sun just cracks below the horizon and there's a sunburst and a flock of birds flies over and suddenly Artemis is there. But also in the background on the ground instead of in the sky there's also a statue of artemis it's a really unusual version of artemis it's the one that looks like it has a hundred mm. breasts on it but it's the artemis of ephesus 
So I had two versions of Artemis watching that scene. Hmm. That's cool. That's cool. What did what did you enjoy the most about diving deep into Greek mythology and then trying to reflect those characters and some of those stories? Like, were there, is that something you were already relatively familiar with, or was it all kind of new to you? Oh, um, I, I'm a because I love Thor and Thor cartoons and comic books and stuff like that. Uh, that led me yeah. into the path of just loving all the Western mytho all the mythology I could get my hands on. And then later I became a Dungeons and Dragons player as a teenager. And then I got the book, uh, Deities and Demigods, uh, the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons uh, source book. So I just, I thought uh, mythological gods are wonderful and just so much fun. But the great fun of following on Phil's, I mean, it's intimidating following Phil on from volume, his uh, volume one, number one. But also the great joy of it is how insanely, again, Alexander McQueen-esque, brilliant his takes on the gods are. Because they are mm -hmm. not, they are not what you'd expect as a traditional interpretation at all. Even with the very pop culture uh, DC Comics interpretations of them, he just yeah twists them. He gets the essence of who they are or what aspect of those gods he and Kelly Sue uh, want to emphasize, and then just twists it into something totally new and different. It's really fascinating. Um, uh, not Hestia. Um, the goddess of magic. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm horrible with names. Even the gods, names of goddesses. But the goddess of magic, where she's the three-headed, twisted, uh, 100 arms and bound inside of metal thorns uh, character. Yeah, I mean, I had would never have imagined that as a way of representing that goddess. But damn, does it work? Yeah. No, it's really cool. And this this issue opens with I think it's the seven primary goddesses, right? And you get a, a visual and kind of what their deal is. Yeah, uh, we have a double page spread with the six goddesses who aren't uh, Hera, and then we have the double page spread of just Hera. So yeah, all seven of them. Um, I should also mention, so this means that I'm not following so much Greek myth. I'm following, I was doing deep research into literally Alexander McQueen and other fashion designers for the, the divine realm, but then I was researching into actual Greek uh, history for the, for the earthly realm. And just a lot of weird details like what do chamber pots look like inside of Greece? And weirdly, it's, I'm not this isn't weird. It's it's hard to find ancient Greek chamber pots. So I just threw in an ancient Roman one and hope to look hope I did not annoy anybody who's an ancient uh Greek chamber pot archaeologist or something like that. But you know the, the, yeah, um, yeah, the scholars and the archaeologists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what does the front door of a Greek house look like inside of a big city? And it was like, oh, I didn't know that details there. Where they, they usually had a square cross section stone post or wood post carved with a face of, um, uh, I think it's Hermes on it, and a little mm. penis symbol, uh, kind of in the middle of the post, an erect penis. <laughs> so if you look okay. very carefully on one of the scene in the scene inside the Greek, the populated constantly populated Greek city near the end of the book, you'll see a house with this yeah. weird post in the front, and that's what that is. Wow. Okay. Yeah, what a detail. I mean, and that, and honestly, that ties into and reflects the gender conversation that is happening throughout Historia, right? I mean, so one of the, I think one of the pages that's probably the most striking is there's a double page, double page splash with Hera lamenting the lack of equal rights for women, basically in the past, in the future, basically throughout all time. And there's a yeah. background of this powerful image um, of all these inspirations and historical figures and moments. 
how did you determine uh, who to choose there, how to include them, kind of what went into that particular moment? Because it's very striking. Okay, I, sh I should say, uh, one of the great things about working with Kelly Sudakani, and it's a huge compliment, is that she'll both throw out incredible graphic ideas at you on how to handle a scene. She doesn't require you to do it quite the way she says in the script. She trusts you not to, to find a creative solution that's better if you feel that it's better and it works with the story. But sometimes she'll just say, you're the artist and I trust that you have a graphic imagination even better than me, um, a comics writer who has an incredible graphic imagination. And you can see that in say Phil's designs in number one. Um, and she'll just say, I don't know how you're gonna do this, but we need to, on this double page spread, show Hera raging and lamenting uh, 3000 years of injustice against women using only using her and birds and a lot of feathers. And that was the description of the page. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I'd already set up a trope where uh, my symbol for uh, Hera's plans for the in the future uh, was represented by the golden spiral, the golden proportion, golden ratio, uh, spiraling yeah. out like a seashell. So I knew that that was going to be involved in it, and therefore I was going to uh, arrange feathers flying out at the viewer, looking like they're coming at you uh, in a seashell spiral. And then I had to figure out okay, how am I going to use this to represent injustice against women? Like, I mean, I didn't want to like form the letters, you know, sexism sucks or something like that. Um, <laughs> and then I came upon the idea yeah. that, yeah, it's a spiral, which implies the unspiraling of time or the unwinding of a clock spring. So then I arranged mm. uh, historical scenes inside of it. And I wanted to try to get as many sections of the world as I could, uh, as many time periods as I could, including definitely the modern day and kind of, but I also needed to figure out, I didn't want it just to be women, a history of women being ground down by uh, injustice. I also wanted to show it women of spirit building their own worlds and sometimes fighting back. Mm -hmm. So I, um, so that's how I selected them. And uh, if you go online, you can you might be able to find my tweets or my Instagram images of me explaining um, yeah. what each of those images is. And in fact, I can email it to you afterwards so you can put it on the screen. I would love to. Uh, I would love to share that, and uh, we'll we'll try to put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, because it's. It, I think that'd be awesome, and and probably lead to some additional research and reading and all sorts of things, right? For yeah. fans of the work, um, which is always a nice a nice bonus. Yeah. Well, uh, the one thing where I was definitely able to integrate a feather into the uh, the spiral of injustice was I had the last scene, be a one of the birds from the scene dropping off a feather to uh, Mary Wollstonecraft who uh, the second feminist in history, who was writing mm -hmm. um, a treatise on um, a defense of the rights of women. I, I, I'm getting the name, name a little bit wrong, but essentially it's a very famous book on why women deserve equal rights written around, around 1800. And the birds, she's writing with a quill feather and then a bird drops off a new feather for her. Awesome, awesome. So uh, this, is, uh, this is such a detailed, I think, I don't know, like it's a, it's such an expansive way to tell the lore of Wonder Woman's history. Um, one thing that I'm kind of fascinated by is, I guess what the third volume is gonna do, right? We got we got Zeus coming into the picture at the end of your volume. Um, we know Nicholas Scott already has the third volume. I think that's coming later this year. Um, yeah, how much it's... have you been kind of ruminating on, I, I guess, have you seen that volume? And uh, what, what would you tease for fans about like, you know, kind of what to expect about where this is going? Uh, she started on the book before I totally finished uh, volume two. And so I was able to consult with her, send her re any reference she needed and such. 
Uh, and then I was also able to see her inks from the first about 10 pages. And um, the way I would describe it is it's got all the elements of all the thing, all the virtues that me and Phil established in numbers one and number two. But also she brings a joy to it because it's partially because the story has changed. This is the Amazons are trying to figure out who they are and how they're going to and what they're going to do now that uh, they met Hippolyta and she's kind of changed the way they look at the world. And also the male gods uh, have picked their tools for uh, for crushing this insurgency. And you get so I mean, this is where the big action scenes happen. And I, I got to see yeah. the beginning hints of some of the showdown coming about. You know, it's essentially it's getting it's getting to see the the fighter jets, uh, the uh, the X wings flying out towards the Death Star, and then before they get to the trench run, just like, okay, and now you're out of the conversation. I mean, they sent it to me probably if I asked, but I'm it seems a little bit rude to say, give me the preview or else. Um, but it's amazing. It's just like, oh, this looks so good, and oh, they're about to start the trench run. And, oh my, it's um, it's full of beauty and joy. It's prettier than me or Phil did like just there's just kind of this lightness and prettiness to it but also it's got um the complexity and the design and the humanity that we've all me and Phil put in but also just this kind of joy this kind of lyrical quality to it that wasn't quite there before and mm -hmm. um if you see the cover the cover has been released and yeah. it is amazing and you can kind of feel how it just has this kind of oh man it is just it just makes you happy seeing that cover. It just you can feel the yeah. joy coming from Nicola and Kelly Sue. Yeah, yeah. Following uh following a C two E two panel you were on with Wonder Woman, um you you were I saw you tweeted and I, I think you talked about it on the panel, um yourself and uh, Sonia Anwar had some some big ideas around kind of the world of Diana and Wonder Woman and Themyscira that you were sharing. I was curious if you want to talk a little bit more about what were some of the ways that you've kind of started thinking about this world now that have shifted um now that you've been so heavily involved oh um i mean the fun thing is that uh sonya's viewpoint on the characters or what, what she wants to do with it is uh it's outside of what kelly c was doing which is kelly c was focusing very much on the history in the mediterranean history of Themyscira and the greeks and the greek gods yeah. uh and a lot of what Sonia wants to do is expand beyond that. And I should mention also that we also had, oh, I can't, there's an artist who's, I've seen some samples of Gore Camera's name, the male artist. Uh, and then also my uh, fellow, uh, fellow Chicagoan, uh, Ashley A. Woods. Uh, so Ashley yeah. was there and she was talking about Nubia. And then it kind of came up during our discussion, you know, our panel discussion that um, at least, I'm, I'm not sure about the current state of her history, but in her original history, she came from, a separate colony of Amazons living outside them outside of Temascara. Mm -hmm. uh, so essentially, this colony has a different history than the Themyscira Amazons. And while the Themyscira Amazons haven't necessarily gotten involved in the world for the last two thousand until Wonder Woman, that other mm -hmm. colony could have done anything. Um, and then we also began talking about how like. Uh, uh, Sonya, if she got the chance, would love to use more Greek mythology. Like I'm going to no note that if you look inside of uh, Historia and most of the books, you don't see major characters who are non-humanoid. But there's Greek mythology is full of we the weirdest stuff. Whereas some 
odd folk tale about you know a human-headed lion-bodied serpent tail dragon and goat-headed uh monster and it talks or you know people just there's so many weird creatures you can use as actual dialogue characters inside of the mythology or just weirder things weirder elements of the history she just Sonya's in love with this stuff and I mentioned also well if we establish and some interpretations uh, Diana is a demigod or even a goddess mm-hmm. full goddess uh, and she's able to get into the divine realm of Greek mythology and those gods and goddesses uh, she will be able to cross over into other mythological realms and deal with them and even recruit from them mm. and you could have a league of extraordinary wonder women and she could just do a kind of a Batman Incorporated thing with any historical or mythological character she would like. Just going through the afterlife. She can go to the afterlife of any, you know, any mythology or any religion and just pluck people out of it because there's a mission they're needed for. It would be an amazing team. Just pulled uh, oceans, pull together oceans, love and style whenever she needs them. So yeah, there's that sounds incredibly fun. So many stories to be told. Yeah, and also because there's this whole theory of non-Themyscira Amazons, you can tell stories in any time period, not with Wonder Woman, but with those Amazons uh, getting involved in any period of, of world history, actual world history. So it's just like, it's like, oh my, I did not know you could tell uh, Wonder Woman stories about all these different places using all these different characters, but it makes total sense. Anyway, uh, DC, you need to talk to Sonya because I am not a superhero comic book writer. I am a modern fantasy writer in comic books. I'm not really interested in writing superheroes, but Sonya is, and she's good at it, and she has amazing ideas. So also, uh, anyone out there who wants to tell DC Comics they need to contact Sonya, please do. Yeah, there we go. There's a good pitch. So you don't, you're not interested in doing um, like a written and drawn uh, DC or Marvel kind of corporate, um, corporate owned superhero story? Like you, you're, you're pretty I'm out not- on that? I'm not really interested in that type of stuff. I love drawing them, uh, but I'm not interested yeah. in writing them. Um, there's, there's this. I've kind of fallen out of following the regular comics for the most part. I mean, I'll, I follow creators. I don't follow characters so much. So if I'll create sure. a writer I really love is writing a book or something, I'll follow it. But I've kind of lost track of. Also, I hate events. I, I mean, God bless the fun <laughs> events that happen in comics and you know, in Crisis yeah. Infinite Earths. But I cannot read another. Oh, surprise! The whole universe is going to be destroyed, and we need to get every damn comic in the line involved in it. And it's just like oh, I hate these yeah. so much. <laughs> um, and I know they don't quite involve all the books anymore, but it's still annoying to me. I don't want to follow it. Um, so yeah, uh, so there's so many ways. I am just not a modern uh, American superhero comic book writer. I could write like a single issue of something that's non-continuity or something like that, or a graphic novel of it. But writing continuity is just ah, no. I don't want to follow in that yeah yeah oh also oh that's funny yeah yeah and also keep god bless the editors and the writers who keep track of this but keeping a book in continuity and current with the continuity and making sure it doesn't clash with another book is a nightmare it is so hard mm-hmm. and i don't want to get involved in that either like you can't be in this city now gotcha. you can't use this minor side character right now because you know they need it in this book and you can't be in two places at once so yeah yeah it's a project it's it's definitely a project um, okay. No, that makes sense. So, all right. So you're focused on, obviously, Historia is out now. Um, your, your creator-owned works, you've got May, uh, which there's 12 issues out that people can check out. This is your creator-owned story of two um, sisters, uh, one of whom kind of vanishes, disappears at one point, 
and it's revealed early on, this is not a particular spoiler, that basically she went to a fantasy world, right? Kind of this Narnia type situation, but it allows you to, you know, you mentioned the D&D influences earlier, right? It's this huge mythical fantasy land, and then both sisters get involved. Um, is Are there plans for returning to Mormay now that Historia is done, um, or do you see that settling at 12 issues? Uh, I have another volume plotted out on index cards on a cork board uh, in another room nearby. So it's all plotted out. I know exactly where it's going, um, but I have not written the script yet and I haven't drawn it. And before I do that, I have a post-apocalyptic young adult graphic novel I want to do with a uh, well-respected, well-loved YA uh, graphic novelist, novelist. Uh, <laughs> and um, I need to get that done first because it's so exciting writing for writing comic books for actual kids and older kids, teens, but man, it's just, I just love it. And she's, she knows there's a clue right there who it is. Uh, she knows so much about how t teens like to read and also how they feel in a way that I don't remember the pain of being a teenager nearly as well as she does. I mean, she, she mm -hmm. understands the pain of being a teenage boy better than I do, which she shouldn't. But um, oh, she's so good. She is so good. And understanding also not just how it felt, but also how to evoke the emotion so they understand the situation. And uh, getting to work with a writer like that is just amazing. I'm going to say I've, I've worked with some amazing, so many legendary writers, but none of them have understood the teenage experience the way she does. It's just that's awesome. That's I mean, I've really enjoyed yeah. seeing you know with the with the launch of May, um, but just kind of your career over the last several years. Like you've clearly taken a shine to the younger readers, right? And and the market and the potential of getting comics in these kids' hands. You know, one thing that I, I told my wife this before we started talking, but it's like I literally have a bookmark with your face on it. Um, <laughs> that I use in comics because you did a talk at the Downers Grove Library, right? The Chicago area. Wow. That's that's near my shop. Yeah. My comic shop had these bookmarks. So I have a Gene Ha bookmark. <laughs> and I tell you that, one, to tell you, you've done a lot of work in, in libraries and promoting and getting these things out there. Um, when, do you, when do you think it clicked for you that like this was kind of something you really wanted to hit more? And I guess... You know, you've been doing it for a while now. Um, it sounds like you're just as jazzed about it now, if not more so, right? Getting to do this new project. Do you see that kind of continuing yeah. to be your trajectory? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's not the only thing I want to do. I love writing for uh, people uh, people over the age of 25 or over the age of 30. I love writing for my fellow 50-year-olds. Um, but being able to bring in kids is just such a treat because... For all of my career, except, for, well, okay, so at the start of my career, if you went to uh, around, say, 1995 to a comic convention, it was almost all 15-year-old boys who were into uh, the X-Men, the X-Force books and stuff like that. And then 30 and 40 and 50-year-old men uh, who are into comics. And there were very few younger kids uh, and the very few, very, very few women and girls of any age. And mm -hmm. this is actually how I did my famous thing of doing free drawings for kids, which is uh, I'd see 
there was nothing often felt like there's nothing for these if you weren't into superhero comics there's very little for uh fun for the um non-superhero fans to have and i'd see these uh my fellow comics grognards uh dragging around a kid who looked bored it could be a boy it could be a girl but they both look they look bored um or it could be mm. a female significant other and i think to myself wow they deserve one good experience while they're at a comic convention and so i do a portrait of them or just do a drawing of them, whatever they'd like and it just struck me very hard that if we don't get new readers we're not going to have a comic book industry uh in a few decades and then every year comic sales of my early career sales went down 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 up until about 2010 i started around 1995 so 15 years of decline i got to watch this happen and um so getting the ch and i th thought i need to do something to help save the comic book i need to help bring in new readers and i like new readers i like dealing with kids and stuff like that and uh i like yeah uh strong female characters and when i say strong i don't mean necessarily um action heroes and stuff like that like may the main character of my book is not an action hero her sister is but she is not i mean yeah. interesting complex proactive characters strong female characters that way um so i've done all these things like uh help promote libraries do school events and all that type of stuff but I should mention that the people who saved the comic book industry by bringing in new kids are creators like uh, Jeff Smith of Bone and a, and the superstar in all this. And I have one of her books right over here. Uh, sorry. I've got two of her books right over here with an easy reach uh, is Raina Telkemeyer. Right. And this is the book that saved comics. And she will be like, she, she will be kind of like, I'm not sure about that if you ask her personally. But Smile changed the industry where it just brought in so many kids to loving comics and making and librarians to understand that kids love comics and teachers to understand that kids yeah. love comics. Where before Raina Telgemeier, a lot of teachers and a lot of librarians were really down on the idea of kids reading comics. And then suddenly they realized, oh, Raina Telgemeier is a gateway drug to literacy, to literature. And it was just like, I mean, Books like Bone and Smile are the reason why consistently for the last, since 2010, so the last 12 years or so, uh, kids, middle grade and YA graphic novels are the most consistently growing literature category or book category inside the industry. And sometimes the only industry, the category that's actually growing every year, which is saving comics. And then yeah. these kids, some of these kids will transition to reading superhero comics. And that's where we're getting a lot of our new readers. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I keep um I keep going to the story, but I was at I was at my local library with my kids. My kids are real young, they're under five. Um, but we're looking in the kids' graphic novel section and a mom and her daughter walk in there, daughter's maybe eight, nine, and the mom goes, Oh, do you want to get this one? And she pulls out a Raina book, smile or guts, one of the two. And uh, the girl goes, oh, I've read that one like 11 times. Um, yeah, I'll get it again. And I was like, holy cow. <laughs> like, like she's getting it 12 times. Like that's the power of how big these books are. You know, obviously case study of one, but they are massive. Like they are, they are just so big. Oh. Um, and it's cool to see. I mean, it's cool to see whatever the, the genre is, right? Whatever the style is, just kids reading comics. I yeah. love it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's... I. For, for those first 15 years of my career, the it felt like every year we were having a crisis, an infinite crisis on infinite Earths. Of just like every year, it feels like, oh, here's another event that could destroy the industry. Marvel, Marvel went bankrupt for a while. I mean, uh, for at one one year, 
during a crash, uh, two thirds of comic shops in the United States closed. I mean, there were so mm -hmm. many events where it's like, I don't know if we're going to survive this. And then yeah. Jeff Smith and Raina Telekmeyer and all those folks uh, came along and saved the industry because so many of those kids who started their kids' graphic novels were us. Yeah, sure. So, like, so yeah, I mean, that, that is interesting because you started, you know, your career takes off um, with Marvel, with some of the licensed stuff, right as the yeah. industry is going through maybe its worst time ever, right? With the Marvel bankruptcy and, and the distributor wars and all the craziness that happened circa 1996, yeah. right? And now here we are, 2022, kids' literature is, is booming, right? Do you feel like the comics industry as a whole, like, have you ever seen it better? Like, do, like, do you feel like it's in the best oh. place throughout your career? Yeah, I feel like, um, okay, so of course, the start of the comic industry, the era when Superman came up and all, all those books, is is called the golden age and i feel this is the this is the better golden age right now that we're living through yeah yeah because the first golden age began collapsing soon after world war ii it was not a sustainable model um mm -hmm. and then you know the mccarthy hearings and frederick wortham and all that type of stuff seduction of the innocent just really really slammed uh comic books especially as a creative form and now we've got this explosion where American comics is is growing and expanding and moving into new subject matters and genres and authors and uh, reaching new audiences in a way that has never been possible before, ever. Um, and it just keeps on growing and growing. And um, it's just more things are possible now. Things are possible now in a way they've never been before. It's just brilliant. It's just great seeing it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm always, I, I'm a huge fan, obviously, of the medium. And there's one thing that I am perpetually amazed by is any of the kind of factions of, of complainers who complain about, you know, oh, the books all stink or blah, blah, blah. It's like there is, there's so much variety and there are so many good comics coming out from so many different places, plus the degree of access that we have now through streaming, through libraries, through everything, right? It's like, it's so hard to not find something to read. <laughs> like, like there's so many books that I want to read that I'll never catch up with, you know? Um, it's, it's just, it blows my mind that anyone could think there aren't enough good comics, right? If anything, there are too many yeah. <laughs> in my view. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, man, like 10 years ago, I was like, man, this web comic thing is interesting, but I, it's, it's gotten so big. I can't even comprehend how big it is. There's just pockets of the comics community where I'm just, never going to understand this giant audience of people out there reading in a different way or a different subject matter that I'm never going to be in touch with until it pops up so big, essentially shows up in Publishers Weekly or something like that. Right. But behind, underneath each of these icebergs floating on the ocean, like when you see uh, the hockey comic Check Please show up or something like that, which is something like, what the heck yeah, is yeah. that? A gay hockey comic uh, written by a woman uh, who grew up in Africa and had never really watched hockey until she got to the United States for college. Uh, I think she was in Yale. And they were just like, this sport is amazing. And she made a gay hockey comic and it was brilliant. And it's, um, yeah, but you know, she is just, again, that little tiny iceberg cap with this giant mass of other brilliant web comics and stuff like that. I have no idea about, you know, invisible to me, but below the water. Oh, that's how I've been feeling about um, Webtoon more and more. Uh, is, you know, I will, I'm, I am slower to catch on 
to what is hot and hip there because I'm getting older and I'm more set in my ways and I, I know certain comics, but I don't have a steady stream of, oh, you got to read these 10 webtoons or whatever, right? Um, so something yeah. like a Lore Olympus becomes huge and I catch up and I, I get acclimated. But I'm like, there is yeah. so much under the surface. It's the same thing, right? And and those are probably going to increasingly get their moments in the, sh- in the sun and, and get published in graphic novel form and become Netflix series and yada yada, right? Um, but there's yeah. so much there. It's, it's very cool. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the stuff will never break through in the, uh, the internet world I know and the social media I follow. So like I have a friend, um, Serena Guerra, who's been doing comics for a while, but she's recently become very successful on uh, TikTok. And just she'll mm. like share a drawing she's doing while she's drawing it and just talk about it. And it's very soothing, but it's also super beautiful. And she's got like hundreds of thousands getting towards millions of followers right now. Um, But these things are not popular on the media I follow, which are like, I mean, they're popular, but not hundreds of thousands popular uh, on the media I follow. So things like Facebook or YouTube, nothing. Uh, She did a goddess's coloring book, which went, you know, virally popular, except... uh, Amazon doesn't like actually presenting it. It's like hiding it and saying, wouldn't you rather get these other goddesses comic book or coloring books published mm. by an Amazon imprint instead? And it's just like, you know, but it's there invisible to me because I'm in the wrong place, except I'm friends with her. So she can actually show me the work she's doing. It's like, wow, this is the best work you've ever been doing. This is totally brilliant. And it's mm. not gaining any traction to things I know. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a really good example. Definitely. Definitely. No, there's, there's tons of great stuff out there. It's awesome. Um, it's a good time to be a comics fan with, with May, you know, the one question I do want to come back to you with is that was your kind of biggest foray into writing and drawing. Right. And I, I've seen you talk yes. about in previous interviews, how you had to kind of learn to, to write, um, you know, and you, you had some tutors and kind of some lessons there. Is that something that you want to engage with more? Like, do you want to flex those writing muscles more or now that you've done it some, are you actually like, actually, I don't like that as much. Like, where do you stand there in that relationship between the elements of storytelling? Uh, because I'm a, I'm a pretty well-known American comic book artist. Uh, I have the chance to work with amazing writers. So like, for instance, I mean, the joy I get from writing and drawing May is just hard to describe. It's just so much fun. And uh, I love the characters so much. And I love the readers so much. Uh, it's just, it's everything about the community, both real and fictional people uh makes me happy but also then the unnamed ya novelist graphic novelist i'm getting to work with is able to do things i can't do because she has an understanding of both uh a slice of readers and also a both as what they feel and how they perceive and then also how to present to them that is just beyond my understanding i mean there's like she's reminding me working with her she's reminding me of how i felt as a teenager when she talks about teenagers like oh yeah that was painful oh that was mm. that was life affirming and she's uh one of the observations she's had is uh the value of putting uh fantastic characters into street clothes and how you do it and how what makes it work and what makes it not work and i remember back when i was a teenager and i read matt wagner's mage in which these people were like uh, a king arthur character who goes around in uh, tennis shoes, jeans, and a black t-shirt with a white lightning bolt on it, 
or uh, another character who looked like girls in my high school uh where she's um a young black woman with uh big curls and she wears kind of a newsboy cap um just and just these people who talk and look like people i knew living in a city that kind of looked like uh south bend indiana yeah. it's just it hit me in a way that no other comic had at that point having people in street clothes living in a city that looked like mine instead of inside of a stainless steel and glass uh mansion or you know skyscraper just kind of blew me away and i could it made the world i lived in it changed how i, I interpreted the world i lived in where suddenly south bend looked magical when i never had before and i could just imagine magical things happening in my world yeah so working with an author who can do things and write things understand things the way you don't is amazing and because of who i am i get the chance to do that and it's hard to pass that up sometimes again also kelly sure. sudaconic is another example though she writes in a very different way than the ya author but she's also able to perceive and write and both uh, technically and emotionally and socially just write things i could never write she's just so genius yeah, no, it totally makes sense. No, it's cool. I mean, it's it's good that you get all those opportunities. I'm really looking forward to this secret book now. Like, I'm in my head, I'm like running through names, <laughs> of like who this who this writer could be. But I bet we'll see uh, see soon. Um, all right. So it, before before we kind of wrap, I had two kind of questions about your your comics career. So like, I think you know you probably get questions about this all the time. Top ten, obviously this. Yeah amazing kind of influential work that you did um, as part of the ABC comics with Xander Cannon and Alan Moore. What was the biggest lesson you got working with those two individuals on top 10 that like st sticks with you to this day? Um, okay. So I'm going to give the, an early lesson I got from Alan Moore, um, which is that uh, if you, he's written some really famous uh, stories that involve time travel. So they're very intricately plotted where events throughout the book, tie together to other events or like there's watchmen where like one panel ties into another panel many issue, issues later and it just the whole book is just knotted through with threads that uh make an incredibly complex uh wire harness from an expensive car or just like yeah the, yeah it's just wires everywhere connecting to each other uh so when he started we were talking on the phone a lot uh when we started the first issue and i began talking he began talking about his plans for later issues, but there were barely any. And I began asking about this and he was like, his answer was he plots ahead as little as necessary. So if he's doing a time travel story, obviously he's forced to make all these complex knotted wiring diagrams between different sections of the story. But right. uh, in this case, he wasn't going to do, he was going to do no time travel. So he didn't have to do that. And he wasn't going to because it was going to make a crappier story. So he knew that one character was going to, when she visited a crime scene, was going to, and this spoilers we haven't read top ten. Uh, she was going, she's going to go to a crime scene and she would hear Beethoven's "Ode to Joy." To Joy, da 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 da. Um, and then later, she would solve the crime when she uh, noticed that somebody was wearing an unusual perfume, and she asked what the name of it is, and it's. O, French for water, O de joie, O to joy. And then she realizes, oh, you, you're the, you're the one. Um, yeah. And the lesson I took from that, the way I, I would rephrase the lesson I took from Alan Moore in that case is that trust future you. 
that you'll be just as creative tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that as you are today. And if you try to force the creativity you have today to be enough for a whole long story, you're cutting off future you from adding more creativity later. And if you just keep on adding mm. your day supply of creativity to the story as you're going along, it's going to amass this giant pile of creativity that wouldn't be possible if you plotted too far ahead. Hmm. That's cool. That's a good idea. Because I feel like a lot of fans, myself included, there's a lot of, there's so much admiration and sort of respect for the long-term planning, right? These amazing yeah. sequences of, oh, this thing happened in the first issue and then, you know, two years later it paid off with this amazing moment, right? And, and people love that stuff. Um, but that's a fascinating way of looking at it as saying, well, you didn't necessarily need to know that <laughs> when you did the cool thing the first time. You just needed to set yourself up with enough rope that you could get there, right? And, and trust yeah. yourself. And, yeah. And you give yourself opportunities to be creative later. So essentially that Ode to Joy moment was Alan Moore running through a battlefield and then tossing a sword into the air. And then eight minutes later, he puts up his hand and catches it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you just give yourself the opportunity you know That's so good. and sooner or later i'm gonna catch that sword and i have done something now i don't know how i'm gonna use it um better call Saul, they do this a lot too where they'll set up a moment sure. and they have no idea how they're going to use it in the future but they know they will so uh last season of better call, uh not better call, uh, last season of breaking bad uh walt puts a machine gun a military m60 i think machine gun into the trunk of his car and then it pays off in the last episode of last season. They didn't know how they're going to use it when he finally figures out how he's going to use that machine gun. And it looks like they had right. this plan all along, but they just knew we're going to do something creative later. And we trust we're going to be creative later, but we're going to do a setup now that we're going to have to pay off. And we don't know how. And it looks like yeah. it's this intricately, you know, like they planned it all along, but they didn't. They, they purposely did not plan it ahead. Yeah. No, that's very cool. That's very cool. I love that. Um, okay. Final question for you before we let you go. I saw you mention in a previous interview that one of your favorite earliest works was the chance to work with Archie Goodwin on DC Showcase oh. 95, number 11. I dug it up. My um, comic shop actually had a copy. And it's a really cool Arkham Asylum story. Um, I love it. Is that your favorite early career work that you've done? And if it is, why? Oh, um, so, okay. So this I did that bef way before... Uh, a few years before I worked with Al Moore, so many years have passed now, like two, three years is not yeah. a long time anymore. But back then it was. So way before I worked with uh, Alan Moore, and Archie Goodwin contacted me and said, hey, I'd love to work with you on this anthology book DC's doing to do a short story. And we'll try to get any writer you're interested in working with to write the story for you, if you'd like. And um, the first name I said was Alan Moore, and Archie said the obvious, which is, at this point, Alan Moore is not well, not ready to work with DC Comics, so you're going to have to pick somebody else. Mm -hmm. And then I said, Archie, I want to work with you. And if you read the stories uh, that Archie Goodwin has done through his career, he's most famous as an editor, as one of the greatest editors in the history of comics. And also, one of yeah. people call me the nicest guy in comics, but Archie Goodwin had such a good heart. He was so, he was so much a better person than me in so many ways. He was just so kind. Um, he... I said, I want to work with you. And he said, I don't No, Seriously, who do you want to work with? And it's like, you, his stories are good. Read uh, his Manhunter with Walter Simonson. Walter Simonson drawing, Archie Goodwin writing. And it's just such a brilliant explosion of creativity um, from the early 70s. 
and he wrote a story for me and it was brilliant and part of what happened also is that um this is relatively early in my career i was like two or three years in um he pulled me away from kind of the uh early image uh young blood wildcats uh x you know uh, x-men number one type style storytelling which i hadn't totally yeah. bought into but it largely bought into and had been trying to do super dramatic uh how to do comics in marvel ways uh you know high drama scenes every point in the story and he, his advice was okay you can't do that on the first page in this story because this story is a slow buildup of tension and if yeah. you release all the tension on the first page it's not you it's the suspense doesn't build. You need to build suspense in this story, not that. And it was just he taught me how to do the storytelling for the script he wrote for me, visually. Yeah. And it was the most important comic book lesson I ever had because it was early in my career and it made me ready for everything else I did. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love it. Now I do highly recommend that people can find this. It's DC Showcase ninety five number eleven. It's the second story in that issue. It's really good. It's a it's a classic feeling kind of arkham asylum story you know like it's not some like massively influential like oh and we've seen this character again th you know thing but it doesn't need to be like it's it's pretty memorable and I, I i quite enjoyed it so yeah it's a good one um oh i should i should mention visually it's the high point of my crosshatch style where before i got control of the shading and the coloring at all uh, i was trying to do everything through uh u.s currency style uh shading lines and anti-shading lines and stuff like that so it's it looks kind of like um, it looks like a dollar bill. That's the style I was using. I was trying to make it look like a really good portrait on that. Uh, also, it has a double page spread on it, which is a 180 degrees panoramic, where it looks really odd if you look at it on the page because it's all fish-eyed lenses, lens out. Yeah. But if you if you literally get a print copy of the comic, you can't do this with digital unless you have a very weird computer screen, and you wrap it around your head like half a waste, waste paper basket and just turn your head and look like this and this, the fisheye lens effect disappears. And it's just, it's a panopticon where you're in the middle. It's a half panopticon wrapped around your head. Yeah. And every direction you look, the, the perspective's right. That's amazing. I love that. Oh, that's so cool. Is that, That's the, the thing where Killer Croc's reaching up and he's kind of exploding on one side of the page. Is that sound? Yeah. Yeah. And I, using a lot of literally trigonometry, uh, a paper spreadsheet and a calculator I calculated the curves to make that work right. Uh, That's nowadays so I would be able to, yeah, I would be able to use uh, computers to do it today in various ways, even just warping in Photoshop. But that's how I, before I had Photoshop, before I had a desktop computer, back in 1997, whatever it was, that's how I was able to do it, and just making a graph and sine and cosine waves for the perspective lens. The maths of the art, man, that's that's complex. Very good. Very good. That's so cool. All right, Gene, uh, this has been a pleasure. What What is next for you and what do you want people to check out um, so they can find your work? Oh, um, oh, okay. So, of course, if you have not read his story already, uh, grab yourself a copy if you can find it of uh, number one and number two. Uh, they are freely available on uh, as digital comics. They're really hard to get the uh, actual print comics at this point because uh, DC did a limited run. Uh, and the number three is coming out and hopefully eventually, hopefully, definitely they're going to collect all of this. Uh, but it's yeah. going to be a long wait for that. Uh, I'm also doing a lot of covers now for Immortal Comics, which has some amazing um, 
culturally honest interpretations of the legends and the actual martial arts of China uh, through American <laughs> characters, American Chinese American characters and stuff like that. Uh, and it's just some of the most fun I've ever had doing covers because they they have pushed me to be really artsy. Um, let me see. Let me see. Uh, I've also been doing a lot of covers for uh, Tom Pears and Jamal Eigel's The Wrong Earth, where uh, they've been playing with uh, 60s versus 80s superhero comics tropes, and just being able to play in their playground is the best, too. That's a fun uh, series. So yeah, those, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's so great. I love it so much. And both of them are such delightful guys with such... I am not the best person for playing around with comic book tropes on a writing basis. Both of those guys are. And they are able to play with them and twist them and refresh them in ways that I just give me joy because I am a comic book geek. I'm just not as good of a comic book as comic book geek as Tom Payer or Jamal Eichel. Cool. Uh, anything on social you want people to check out? Uh, Instagram, Twitter, any of that? Oh, uh, yeah. You can always check out my Instagram. Um, my uh, This sounds like an aside, but I had horrible internet connections over my smartphone when I was at C2E2, so I was not able to post my sketches that I did for uh, C2E2. Uh, so I need to post those online after C2E2. Uh, so you should be seeing a nice flurry of really amazing uh, marker sketches I did. I'm pretty proud of them uh, coming up in the next mm -hmm. week or two. Uh, let me see. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can kind of connect on Facebook, but I mean, it, it's mostly me ranting on Facebook about things that aren't comics or just saying hi to my friends. Uh, so, um, yeah, but Instagram and Twitter are pretty good for that type of stuff. And it, I'm not going to flood your feed. It's just going to be the interesting stuff I post there about comics. Cool, cool, cool. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Everybody, we'll include links to all the books in the show notes, as well as everything Gene mentioned here. Um, but seriously, thanks for oh. your time today. I appreciate you taking the time to chat. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, actually, I should mention this. The obvious thing, of course, is everything is connected through GeneHa.com. So if you want to find out what I'm doing, it includes links to my social media, uh, my uh, convention schedule, all that type of good stuff. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Awesome.